0: Hey again, everybody. John Porteous of the Lovells Township Historical Society here, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. Hey, welcome back. The um, Richard and I have a have a couple of fun guests uh, this week for you. Uh, uh, I got to tell you, probably the most frequent question uh, that we're posed when working at the museum is, uh, "What's going on with the Grayling reintroduction?" So we're going to find out, uh, not necessarily what. The current state there is, but uh, get some color and some uh, input uh, into that program uh, with Nicole Watson. Nicole is uh, an MSU uh, doctoral uh, candidate and is uh, completing her thesis. Uh, she and her husband Tom recently moved from uh familiar uh, environment of the woods here <laughs> around Grayling and Lovells uh, to Alaska. So they have a lot of cool things to share with us. I think you're going to enjoy this. So hang out on the backside, and uh, we'll come back and tell you what's next. Thanks, everybody.
1: Excellent. Well, hey, we're uh, with Tom and Nicole Watson today, Richard. Uh, a couple of uh, very, very interesting people from our neck of the woods.
2: Not anymore. I ran away to Alaska.
1: Yes, well, they did They did abandon us. But uh, welcome, Tom. Welcome, Nicole. Hi. Thank you. We're excited to have for you. Us on. I guess we should probably lead with the lead story. There, you you have relocated. The um, you want to tell our listeners uh, kind of what you're involved with and where you're at. Yeah. So
3: um, I'm finishing up my PhD with Michigan State right now, um, which all of my laboratory and field research is done with that. And as I was transitioning out of lab and field research in East Lansing. Um, started looking for some fisheries jobs, and some positions came up in Alaska. So Tom and I, uh, earlier this year, moved from southeast Michigan, uh, and also we had our cabin just south of Lovell, and we moved about 5,000 miles across country in June, and we are in the valley region in south-central Alaska right now.
2: Well, southeastern Michigan, a good place to be from. (laughs) Alaska's probably about the right distance, eh?
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so so when you, I I guess the the basic question is, uh, what is your new position in Alaska?
3: Uh, So right now I am a fish biologist with the Eastern Interior Office of Bureau of Land Management. Um, And I'm actually transitioning at the end of the month to a position as a fisheries analyst uh, with North Pacific Fisheries Management Council.
4: Wow. Is
2: that an NGO or still government?
3: Uh, It's an NGO, but the cool thing with that is um, it follows the federal government um, pay scale, uh, benefits, everything. Um and it gets me a little more detailed in uh fisheries work more than uh the position with Bureau of land management um oh. that position it's a lot of the b l m position is a lot of habitat work um in aquatics, which is cool um but it's not as heavily focused on specifically fish, so yeah it'll be good to transition back into more of a fish focus well
1: that that was kind of the magic for you in school, wasn't it? Didn't you kind of start down a different path in your studies?
3: Yeah, I did. Um, so I have two undergrad degrees from Eastern Michigan, and I used to be a um, – I was focused on uh, teaching initially, um, then went back to school for my second undergrad initially with pre-vet, and had a fish biology class, it's theology, and absolutely fell in love with fish biology, which is where I ended up. Sorry, dogs barking.
1: Um, that's how I ended up. my <laughs> hair.
3: I ended up at uh, uh, Central Michigan to do a master's in uh, fisheries biology and conservation and then followed by my Ph.D. at Michigan State in fisheries ecology and management with a dual degree in ecology, evolution, and behavior.
1: That is a mouthful, Nicole. Wow.
3: <laughs> it is. I, I I joke all the time that at some point I'll put, like, all of my degrees initials behind my name and it would be, like, a super long line.
1: <laughs> exactly. You could just, you know, just be like uh, pie to the umpteenth. The, um... <laughs> right.
3: But yeah, it's been great, you know, just figuring out really what my passion, you know, once I realized that fish were my passion, you know, growing up, I never really knew that you could be a fish biologist um, for your career. And once I fell into that position, my fish biology class in Eastern was an elective, and it ended up being an elective that pretty much shaped the path of the rest of
1: my life. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, while you you did grow up downstate, um, you guys had a family cabin up this way, didn't you?
3: No, we didn't. Um, We used to come up each summer, though, and we stayed at uh, what used to be called Wyandotte Lodge at McMaster's Bridge. Um, So we came up and we stayed up there several times a year. I would come up with my grandparents, my aunt and uncle, my parents. Um, And so I spent quite a bit of time up in the Grayling area ever since I was born. Um, And, yeah, so it was, you know, it was a tough decision to make to move from Michigan to Alaska. But when Tom and I started coming here for my research with my PhD, um, it felt like home. And, um, yeah, we decided to make the jump.
2: That's super Here we are. Yeah, you did spend a lot of time in Alaska back and forth over the years, didn't you?
3: Yeah, since 2018, I would come out here every May, and I would pick up eggs from one of the local fish hatcheries up in Fairbanks and transport them back to the state of Michigan for my research and for the reintroduction effort. And then while we were here, I would do um, just some general surveys looking at uh, fish behavior um, between uh, so, like, intra-specific, so grayling and grayling and inter-specific grayling and, like, lake chubs, um, which was the common other fish species in the streams that I was at. Uh, and then we would do some surveying of, of course, how they respond to fishing pressure, so some token and line surveys. And then um, we would come back to Michigan. I would do all my lab research uh, from summer through the fall, analyze, and then come back the following year.
2: Do you still have any insight into the grayling project down
3: here? Um, So right now I'm I'm really focused on just finishing up my dissertation uh, work. So that was focused on the reintroduction project um, with competition, predation, and imprinting, and water choice. Regarding what is still going on in Michigan, so the reintroduction is still going forward in the state of Michigan, And a lot of it is now focused on figuring out just like the fish community structure that exists in the streams that they're considering uh, reintroducing them to. And then also looking at the habitat. So you want to make sure that the habitat's available for all life cycles of the fish, not just incubation and hatch. And very early life stage, you want to also make sure that, you know, the juvenile and adult habitat's there, but also there's a conducive fish community structure that will allow for positive growth of both the grailing and not cause any undue harm to the fish community that's currently there. So this is kind of like a do no harm type of reintroduction.
1: Sure, and it it just seems that it, it's almost conflicted in its nature. Um, I think the last time I I had the privilege of hearing you speak, uh, you were. In the process of your predation studies, uh huh, and I, I, I guess I, I mean I, I know that trout are, uh, you know, aggressive, but I, I did not, I guess, realize that they, were such predators that, that would be a potential adverse impact, uh, reintroducing the grayling.
3: Yeah, so um, it's important to remember that all fish are opportunistic predators. So um, fish are always cannibalistic for the most part, Um, Mm -hmm. but then they'll also prey upon other salmonid species and other fish species in general, uh, in addition to aquatic insects and terrestrial insects, plus some mammals like belly, you know, mouse and things like that. Um, What I found, so I wasn't surprised by the predation results. You know, of course, brook and brown trout are going to prey on, grayling fry young like age one and age two brook and brown trout are going to prey on other brook and brown trout as well so that's not really a surprise um what i found really intriguing though was the level of competition that comes up even at age zero for the fish so an age zero is a fish in its first year of life so hatches out in the spring and then i was looking at competition trials later in the summer so like august they would start and I couldn't believe the level of competition that you would see in some of the H0 fish, even that early in life. Um, I think that was really the most surprising aspect of my research. Like, I expected some competitive behavior, but not as much as I thought. Could be.
1: Um,
3: but, you know, it's, it's really important, too, to realize that the research that I did was all done in a lab environment where fish cannot actively escape the pressure of predation and competition. <laughs> where in a natural stream they will or should be able to seek out a refuge type area from competition. Um, So like mine was more of like the Thunderdome type of situation. You know, you're in there, you're stuck, you got to duke it out. But in the natural stream, they should be able to find that special niche where it's a little less competition.
1: In in that spirit, Nicole, Will that play a big factor in in where the state decides or whomever decides to, to put the initial fry?
3: Yeah, so that will come into play when deciding what sections of stream are most suitable, um, but it can also be done rather experimentally as well. So initially you may want to look at different levels of diversity, um, different levels of density of competitor fish species, um, but it would be good to see how they naturally react to different levels, but then you can also set some up where you know the pressure competition is going to be less, say, a stream that has more brook trout, and either zero to very low brown trout population, um, that would likely have a higher level of success than, say, putting them in a stream that has a high density of brown trout.
1: Okay. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. The, um... So a lot to unpack here, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a cheeseburger ham sandwich. Yeah. What are some of the other challenges, uh, I guess, that the program faces?
3: Um, so a lot of it, you know, is funding in general, but that's, you know, kind of across the board for DNR and Fish Division. Um, sure. You know, just trying to make sure that you have adequate staffing levels, you can run everything the way it needs to be, you know, that can really come into play. So that's where um, the kind of like grassroots aspect of the Grayling Marine Introduction comes in. So, for example, um, I actually received the majority of my funding from a um, private donor and uh, with the Wenger Foundation. So they funded my research for three years. And then um, Ironfish Distillery assisted in funding my research as well through their uh rye whiskey and their their bourbon so part of the proceeds for every bottle sold went to help fund my research so that's kind of like i claim the fame is i'm a phd student that was funded by a distillery um
1: i think that that's (laughs) a great angle and not one that many people can say
3: exactly and the spirits are really good too um we're actually a little bummed that so far we haven't been able to find them here, but they're trying to see if we can get some shipped out this way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well,
1: we're, we have to see if we uh, see what the regulations are about shipping you some. The. Uh, it, it's <laughs> right. I'm actually familiar with that distillery, and uh, I've had some of their product. They do a nice job. Yeah.
3: Yeah. They do and really supportive of the research aspect, you know, and that's one of the big things too, is being a little more careful with the reintroduction this time, instead of just treating grayling like any other fish that you rear in a hatchery and then just stock them at fingerling or yearling. um, What we've been finding and what Montana found is grayling are a little bit different and imprinting really comes into play. So there's, you know, slightly different way that you reintroduce them and, Montana has been successful so it definitely gives good light on the prospects of a grayling reintroduction in the state of Michigan.
1: No the the trick that they're using in Montana is that I don't want to oversimplify it but it 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 seems pretty simple. Uh when you think about it it's just um is it some kind of like terraced uh system of uh 5 gallon pails or something?
3: Yeah, so the basic way to think about it, it's first of all, it's called a remote stream, or a remote site incubator, an RSI, and what it allows is the you put the eggs in when they're at eyed egg stage, which literally is a fish egg that has developed eyes, so you call it an eyed egg phase, um, okay. and that allows for imprinting to the water, so it's familiar where they're going to stocked and it gives you um, less chance of out, rapid out migration. So the way it basically works is you just plumb in a system, and you can use, um, for example, like a five-gallon bucket, and you just kind of rig up the bucket to where there's an inflow into the bottom of the bucket. It goes through some uh, like bio media, some gravel, um, uh-huh. an air diffuser, and then you have a net screen or a mesh screen towards the top, and the eggs go on top of there it's covered and there's an outflow towards the top as well. So once the fish hatch and they're ready to swim up, they just swim out the outflow and go right into the stream, which you want them to reintroduce to. And grayling have a very short incubation period. So eggs will be in that uh, site incubator for a very short period of time before the fish are hatching.
1: Well, that's pretty exciting. Does, does their shorter incubation period uh, lend promise for success?
3: Yeah, it could. Um, so it's really interesting because, like, brook and brown trout and and some other Pacific salmonids, they the eggs overwinter, um, but graylings spawn in the spring and the fish hatch out in the spring. So overall, it's anywhere from like an eighteen to twenty-one day incubation period from the time of spawning to the time of hatch.
1: Very exciting. The um
4: so,
1: are are you. I know you're you're migrating into a, a more of a fisheries position now. Um, will will any of any of your grayling work overlap with uh, your new work?
3: So a lot of my new position is going to be more marine fisheries. So marine salmonids. Uh, so I'll deal with Pacific salmonids out here quite a bit, um, and so that would be really interesting. And I'll do some population type modeling. Uh, so some population assessment, um, age assessments, other stock assessments for fisheries. Um, so yeah, they'll really have more of a focus on the marine or anadromous lifestyle of fish. So your chinook, your coho, um, things like that. I'll be dealing with a lot. And then I am, I'll be finishing my dissertation. And, um, so that'll keep me in the grayling realm. And then, um, any additional research, perhaps, that I can do in the grayling law, realm, I'll try and get that in as well. But I'm in a perfect place to be able to just go out and fish for them. Um, there's a stream that we can touch grayling on that's about a half hour away from our house here. So I mean, we'll grayling, yeah, rainbow. grayling and rainbow and arctic char and other Pacific Salman. It's all less than 30 minutes away.
2: Uh, well, let me ask you the less politically correct question then. Did, have you ever eaten one? How do they taste
3: I haven't eaten a grayling yet <laughs> so there's some there's some areas some lakes up here that they stock with grayling and um that's where I'll taste a grayling <laughs> I can't bring I can't bring myself to do that yet on a stream
2: <laughs> full respect wild was up there one year and, uh we fished for them, but they made him put us back so made us put them back rather but
3: Yeah, they're a gorgeous fish. Um, Tom and I, the largest grayling that we've caught up here so far, uh, since we've been coming up since 2018, is about 20.5 inches. Um, And this year, I think our largest this year was probably like 16-inch that we've gotten into.
4: Yeah, and where we fish is uh, catch and release, right?
3: Yeah, yep. Catch and release where we're at right now on the stream, so.
1: Really? Yeah, that's, that's incredible. What, so for those of us who've only dreamed about casting to a grayling, um it, it, we've you know are just surrounded by a bazillion stories of when you know they populated the waters here but what what's it like to fish for is are they easy to take on the fly or
3: so it depends on how heavily they're fished. Um, And it depends on the age of the fish. So the younger fish will be a little more naive. Um, You can throw a higher diversity of flies towards them and catch them. Um, The older fish, especially the ones in more of like the trophy grayling waters, um, those fish are pretty smart. And it's, you know, if there's a cat attached, you are matching the size, the color, And you have to have that good presentation or they're not, they'll come up and look at it, but they're not going to take it. Um, So it's, you know, the common misconception is, oh, grayling are always super easy to catch. And that's not true. They remind me a lot of um, kind of a brook trout back in Michigan, Um, but they can be selective. But then there's days where, you know, it's like, like the hex patch in Michigan where it's feeding frenzy. Um, Mm -hmm. So it really it really just depends on where you're fishing, the age of fish that you're fishing to, um, how hungry they are.
1: <laughs> well no, it's good so to it's hear perfect. that because so so often we hear that, you know speculated that one of the prime you know, uh reasons for the loss of the fish was uh they were just they just come to the fly too easy and, and just you know, people couldn't control themselves. Um, yeah,
3: I mean, that's, that's the thing to remember. So when people say that the demise of the grayling initially
1: in Michigan
3: was overfishing, competition, and logging, what needs to be understood about the overfishing aspect is, I mean, we were talking like hundreds and hundreds of fish caught per fishing party in a short period of time, and that happening with several fishing parties or individuals going out and catching so many grayling, but not practicing proper handling not practicing any sort of catch and release like they would just catch a fish throw it up on shore and keep doing that until the pile reaches you know around shoulder height and then only taking home a few fish to cook up so it's not just that it's not just the fish would bite anything it's just how the whole mentality was at fishing at that time
4: yeah
2: well uh you guys Osaka is running uh you guys been out salmon fishing at all
3: no we really haven't focused on too much salmon fishing um where we're at the rivers have been running really high um so like when we say they're running really high it's like 2000 cfu or cfs so i mean it's
1: brisk
3: it's brisk. <laughs> like it jumps so one of the rivers that we we're hoping to fish um that's considered technically a creek um the gauge height went up about six feet in, I think, two days. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, we're waiting for that water to go back down, but the salmon have been running. Um, a lot of areas are closed to king fishing right now. Um, but, you know, we've been doing a lot of scouting, and now it's bird season, so we're transitioning into bird hunting and scouting new habitat for that as well.
2: When do your bird season open?
3: Uh, it opened August 10th. Yeah, August 10th. For this
4: area. Oh, yep. wow. And then it
3: goes through February, I
4: think. Um, Yeah, I think so. It goes through February. I have to look at the regulations again, but I believe it does. So it's a, it's a good long season, but, you know, a good chunk of that, you have snow on the ground. So yeah. oh, that's cool. why I we get our early start up here in August because the snow, we're going to start seeing snow probably – like mid October, Halloween, yeah. they say, Yeah, there's trick or treating in the snow. Well, <laughs> yeah, there's
2: always that. We had that last year, the year yeah. before. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the temperature It sounds like the temperatures are getting right, so it's. Uh, yeah. Time to hunt. So.
3: Yeah, the last time uh, we ran Clementine last week, uh, it was nice and cool. It reminded me of like late October, early November hunting in Michigan um our leaves our leaves really haven't fallen yet they're just starting to change color down here in the valley the tundra is all nice and color changing right now um so yeah just you know trying to get used to slightly different habitat for birds than michigan it's not like in michigan where you can just pick any old two track and scout out a really young or you know middle age Aspen stand. Here it's a little different. There's not as many two-tracks. Um, and then what you do find, you know, isn't the young Aspen that's been managed by cutting, this is more, you know, a fire went through, but is the area that went through with fire more accessible by a road system? Um, how many brown bears are in that area? How many black bears are in that area? How many trappers also hunt that area? How many people are hunting moose in that area? Um, so it's a little more dynamic than uh Michigan. Um, but we're we're catching on.
4: And you have to get uh used to hunting with a ten millimeter on your hip, too, so <laughs> yeah.
1: and bear spray. <laughs> I gotta think you're you're twice as armed as you might normally be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, my son in law and I were out in um Wyoming last summer and um we had, you know, taken our bear spray along and such and uh, it got to be the uh, the day of the guided trip. And so we were all, all jazzed up and everything. And the guide goes, oh, yeah, almost forgot. And goes back to the truck and comes back with this dirty, hairy-looking chest rig thing. <laughs> that was just yeah. Like, I, mean, I thought, it, it, I could see it up in Alaska. It seemed a little... Uh, over the top for uh, Wyoming, but who knows? <laughs> yeah,
3: I mean, it all depends on the country and the terrain and the area that you're hunting in. You know, like here, right now, a lot of the brown bears and a lot of the black bears are down north by the salmon stream. Um, so, you know, there's there's things that you got to get used to hunting here. And even, like, when I go out and do field work, um, I was just out in the field last week, and we're in Michigan, you just drive up to the site that you're going to survey, here, there's areas that we go and survey and you access them only by a helicopter. Um, And, you know, you don't have cell service. So when we walk out the door here and we go to hunt, one of the first things that I do when we get to the area we're hunting is I send my sister a text message on my Garmin inReach and say, hey, you know, here's my tracking, here's the link for it. I'll send you a message when we get done hunting. So you know somebody should always know where you're at, and you yeah. you never walk out the door here as much to hunt or to hike or to fish without your inreach and your bear spray. Um, so you know those are things that it took a little bit to get used to and making sure you have them on you,
1: um,
3: but it starts to become habit pretty quick.
1: Sure. So so Tom, what's have you uh, have you kind of figured out a favorite species to cast to since being there, or just taking it all in yourself?
4: I'm kind of taking it all in, but I do enjoy uh, catching uh, native rainbows up here. It's it's really neat. Um, I think one thing that um, a lot of people were asking, especially back home, about grayling competition, they were asking about, what about rainbow trout? Well, I can yeah. tell you that we're pulling that uh, on the same creek we can pull rainbow and grayling out of the same pole, So I don't think that's uh, going to be a problem in Michigan. And they're, and they're good size, too. So.
1: Rainbow's pretty healthy?
4: Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can only imagine.
4: Uh, I think early in the season, uh, what we found out here, you can fish mice to them, just skate mice across the water <laughs> during the day, and they, they'll nail them. And it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, what really put a damper on things is the amount of rain we had. The uh, rivers were getting really good shape, and I was, I hooked into a nice rainbow. Of course, I uh, ended up losing it. <laughs> it was a good fight until the fly popped out. But we crimped our barbs on on our flies and everything. So
3: yeah, I came just as I came running up. I was able to see the fish, and it was probably about a 24 inch fish. Um, so a nice big one on, and yeah, fly popped out um bringing it in so it was it was an interesting day, but it was still a lot of fun um the one of the craziest things too that we've experienced up here so far with moving up during the summer is like Tom was talking about you know, we're able to mouse well, you know in Michigan, you're staying up in the middle of the night, you're going out you know until like one, two, three in the morning. And it's pitch black, and here it's one, two, three o'clock in the morning, and it's still bright out. And we're still—you yeah. know—you we can mouse that pretty much any time of day because it doesn't matter the time of day; it's bright.
1: <laughs> that's wild. <laughs> but yeah, that—that's got to be a whole—a whole, uh, whole other dimension. Just getting used to yeah, the daylight.
3: <laughs> yeah, it. I mean, you get used to wearing a sleep mask at night, and I think the biggest thing, though, is like Tom and I—you would have to get used to. Like winding down in the evening, where it would be like what midnight, and you're still it's yeah. still bright enough, and you're trying to go do stuff.
4: When we first got here, that was I wouldn't say it was tough because when you're tired, you're tired. But yeah, you just kind of like, hey, it feels like you know nine o'clock or something. You look at the clock and it's midnight, maybe one o'clock in the morning. You're like, oh boy, I better go to bed. But
1: <laughs> does it mess you up with your your sleep calendar? Do you,
3: no, we um, we wear a sleep mask at night, and we have blackout shades in the bedroom. So um, there there's things that you do to adjust to it, and you just try and force yourself to stay on your regular type of schedule. Um, and just being more, like, we found you have to be a little more mindful in the summer that okay, it's time to start winding down, not going out and doing yard work at you know midnight.
4: <laughs> yes, <Yeah. Sounds bad>. sunset <laughs> right now is nice. Sunset right now is nine o'clock, so we are seeing a good chunk of darkness right now. So. Yeah, we were
2: up there in August a few uh, when I went up in what ninety-seven. Wow, well, that long ago, but I remember you know it was all that sunlight and he was busy all the time and just supercharged. and I got you know I flew back through Chicago because I lived in Columbus then, and when they had to wake me up in the Chicago airport to get me on the airplane. I mean when I. When I left here, I just collapsed. I
4: mean,
2: it was, uh, <laughs> I think I'd been awake. Yeah,
4: on. it is.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. You know, when Tom, Tom and I got here in mid-June, and um, I had to catch a flight up to Fairbanks, what, like last week? And it was one of the first times that I actually drove when it was dark out again. <laughs> Because the other flight that I got was in July, but even though it was still, you know, I was out at 4 a.m., it was still kind of dusky at 4 a.m. in July, where touching it a week ago, I mean, it was finally dark out. And when you're in your vehicle driving in that after, you know, not driving in the dark for so long, it was kind of weird. And
4: it gets dark, huh? Yeah.
2: So you you guys drove up there, too. I mean, you hauled a trailer and took the dogs and drove up. uh, You went up the... So
1: the Alcaton
3: Highway, is that still the adventure it's it was a few years ago? Oh, yeah, it's quite the adventure. Um, so we drove over from Michigan through to Montana and then cut up through Canada from Sweetgrass, Montana. Um, and, you know, the roads were pretty good. And it gets rough, though, especially after Whitehorse and Yukon Territory. Um, there's a lot of frost keys. That you got to watch out for a lot of cracks in the road. Um, about what a week and a half after we got here, um, part of the Alaska highway washed out from a river that got really high. Um, there
4: was so, an avalanche too, I think.
3: Yeah, yeah, there was a slide at one point, um, like right after we passed through. So we really timed our trip perfectly because everything happened after we got through. Um, so. It was, you know, it was amazing, though. We saw some pretty cool stuff um, driving through uh, British Columbia, was it, that we saw the woodland bison?
4: Bison all over the road, yeah. Um,
3: mm-hmm. Saw a wolverine just outside a white horse running down the road. Um, yeah, it was It was pretty cool. It had a, a brown bear stand up on its hind legs on the side of the road while we were approaching. So, yeah, really? a lot of cool
1: stuff that we saw on the way out. Yeah, so that's pretty wild. That's good. <laughs> to write a book definitely don't see that every day yeah
4: (laughs) Yeah. it's definitely a beautiful drive and uh, anybody who's got the time to take an rv or a camper this way i'd highly recommend it and you know just take your time getting up here and just seeing the sights and going back it's you know in the summer it's beautiful so and then you're not once you get up here you're not really in a hurry during the day to get everything done because you're not you know Fighting the clock for daylight, so
1: right. It's oh, got to be incredible. Right. <laughs> it's so, from a provisioning perspective, um, are, are things pretty close at hand for you? Oh yeah,
3: um, where we are in the valley is uh, kind of a more populated area. Um, where our houses is, is, I mean, our area that we have here is partially wooded. Um, on our walk yesterday with the dogs, we had spruce grouse right there in the road in the subdivision. Um, so it's really nice and quiet, but you know, we're 20 minutes away from town and you have everything you need. Some things are easier to get in Anchorage. Um, Anchorage has two Costco though, so you're pretty good on that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's getting used to some stuff, but you know, like you want to be a little more prepared for, um, emergencies here than sure. back in Michigan. But overall, I mean everything's readily accessible.
2: Did you still get Amazon Prime?
3: Yeah, you do. The only thing that I found does not deliver here is um Chewy dot com. <laughs> does not deliver. So that we kinda had to switch um and get our dog's medication from somewhere else. Um but no problems with Amazon. Um it's actually one of the most economical ways to get stuff up here, it seems, because you can still get free
1: shipping. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I would think that that would definitely be the way to go. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, so let's let's cycle back to Michigan for a second. Um, and I'm really stretching uh, my aging brain here, but didn't, weren't you involved with a group of women that were kind of teaching other women's high- – how to be out, out outdoor types
3: yeah um so when we were back in michigan i was a volunteer instructor for becoming an outdoors Woman, which is a program with michigan DNR and i taught traditional archery and traditional cedar cedar arrow building um, oh. and that was up nor- that was in big bay north of marquette that i did that for about 5 years i taught and they actually have a similar program here in Alaska. For become, they have a uh, Becoming an Outdoors Woman program here, too. And here in Alaska, they allow the men to come and participate and learn how to be outdoors men as well.
1: I like that. <laughs> well, and it's, I mean, it's logical. Not everybody, you know, comes up in an outdoor family. And Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, I really it's didn't. It's
1: difficult.
3: Yeah, <laughs> Me growing up, the most outdoorsy thing we did is we went on a canoe trip on the south and that was about it. Um, <laughs> I started fly fishing just, you know, a little when I was about nine, because the guy, an uh, older gentleman at Wyandotte Lodge gave me just a cane pole and said, here, go fish. Um, and he was kind of sick of me just watching him fish the whole time, so finally gave me my own. Um And so that's how I got started. But, yeah, I mean, other than that, you know, my parents never camped. They weren't big hikers. Um, They didn't hunt. Um, They really didn't fish that much either. So a lot of what Tom and I have picked up, we did on our own.
4: Yeah. I I grew up fishing, but, you know, mostly just fishing with and being a worm dunker. Okay. uh, The spin gear. so. I uh, was never a fly fish, uh, fisherman at all, and then uh, something that Nicole and I, when we were up in Grayling, we were like, hey, that looks like fun. Let's go give it a try, and the rest is history. That's <laughs> awesome.
1: That's awesome. Well, and, it, it, and I think it, it goes to show that you don't have to be born with a rod in your hand uh, right. to, to to end up appreciating and having passion for the, for the outdoors, let alone, in your case, making a career of it. Yeah,
3: definitely. You know, like I said, growing up, I didn't know that you could be an outdoor biologist, you know, or go into any sort of ecology. I didn't know that those jobs were available growing up. Um, And once I found out about it, yeah, it, you know, completely formed my path.
1: It's just so awesome because I, it's a similar type of thing. It's like, who knew that, I guess I'm going to blame the guidance counselors at high school. Just not a really good job of of outlining different, you know, outside-the-box opportunities.
3: Yeah, it's completely true. And a lot of times um, what I've noticed, especially like undergraduates at universities don't know, is going into one of the, like, biological-type fields, so like wildlife biology, um, ecology, Mm -hmm. fisheries, things like that, a lot of times you can find your master's degree or even your Ph.D. fully grant-funded to where once you go through your undergrad, your master's and Ph.D. are totally paid for. So you can, if that's your passion, so speaking out there to any of the undergrads that are interested, um, you can get your master's degree fully funded to where you are paid... To do your research, and your tuition is paid for by the university, and you may end up teaching a little bit, um, but you can get either a teaching assistantship or a research assistantship. But then you're not paying tuition out of pocket anymore.
1: Well, so you're you're getting a free education and practical experience all at once. That's pretty yeah, awesome. Yeah,
3: exactly. You know, you're learning. You're learning to think. Scientifically, you're forming your own research program under a guidance council um, and under your advisor. So it really forms you into a well-rounded scientist yourself. Um, and you do; you get that practical experience. You're getting paid to do your research, and yeah, it's it's an excellent program to be in.
1: Well, we're. When we first started uh, on our conversation today before we went on the air, the, uh, y- you were mentioning that uh, you guys were going to head out and uh, try and stir up some grouse. Um, and then, uh, uh, and I apologize, would you say uh, it was on the on the agenda for tomorrow?
3: Um, so I was thinking tomorrow, tomorrow we might go up to um, one of the higher country areas and hunt some tundra, uh, ecosystems for ptarmigan
1: that's just got to be bananas <laughs>
3: yeah so clementine guys, at age hunt. two yep so clementine at age two is going to be able to go out and hunt sharp tailed grouse rough grouse willow ptarmigan rock ptarmigan and white tailed ptarmigan um and sharp tail grouse maybe later this uh next month possibly too interior.
2: Well, she's gonna be well-rounded
3: anyway. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's brilliant. Her drive to hunt is phenomenal, and she's you know she's a fun dog. Um, we do cross-training in the off-season and during the season, um, so she is now officially an Alaskan-type dog with her own X-back uh, sled dog-style harness that she got fitted for and. She runs with us every day, and we're going to um, potentially be uh, training her with a sled dog team. Um, what kind to of dog is you know? with them? What was that?
2: She's a setter, right?
3: Yeah, she's a Ryman-type setter.
2: Uh, well, she'd be big enough. Or yeah. Oh, yeah. The,
3: yeah, definitely. So um, the people who are actually here doing our landscaping, um, it's two twins. The women also compete in the Iditarod every year and some other sled dog teams uh, in races. And um, they have their own team and they actually, they saw Clementine and her drive and said they thought it would be fun to hook her up with some of the younger dogs and take them for a run and see how she does.
1: (laughs) I'll, I'll tell you, it's a blast. We, um, we have some friends that uh uh run run a sled team and it's so i mean it's a whole other world uh just like angling or hunting but uh fascinating fascinating stuff and it and and they're not always you know huskies or malamutes or alaskan hounds it's you know hell my my chocolate lab Zoe went out and pulled with them they ran an <laughs> yeah and that They
3: do, um, here in Alaska, they also do what's called mini mushing and you use a, it's kind of like a mini dog sled. It's called a kick sled. Mm -hmm. And, um, the way that works is the sled's pretty light. Uh, I think it's like a 20 to 30 pound sled and it's shorter. And the whole goal of that sled is you only need one or two dogs to pull it. Right. And you kick with them more than you would at, like, a full-size dog sled team. Um, so I'm actually getting a kick sled later this year so I can keep Clementine. So a lot of what we're doing outside of hunting season is all to keep her in top shape for hunting season. Um, and it's cool because here in Alaska, you can do that a little easier because the weather's more conducive to it, even during the summer. So, you know, winter will be out kick sledding in the spring and summer will be out doing some bike touring and some can across with her. Um and then you know, transition right into hunting season. So, she'll be the nice top-fit
1: dog. Also, <laughs> you guys are going to be in pretty good shape as a function of it too. Yeah.
3: Definitely.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're going to feel that kick sled. <laughs>
3: Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, and, you know, when we're up hunting ptarmigan or, you know, when you're out hunting any of the birds out here, a lot of times the terrain is a little more different, um, especially tundra walking. You know, we're going to be up in the mountains quite a bit for that, for ptarmigan especially. Um, so, yeah, you get used to a different environment. Well,
1: what what is that? Like, is there a lot of elevation change for you to chase the birds?
3: Yeah, so it depends on the ptarmigan species that you're going after. So, like, willow ptarmigan, they want to be more in, like, the lower uh, scrubby willows um, and some shorter stuff. They're not as much in, like, aspen and birch. Um, They will – so willow ptarmigan and some rocks will come down more into the valley if the weather gets really cold in the winter. Um, Rock ptarmigan and white-tailed ptarmigan, you really want to get up above tree line. So – I mean, that's kind of the elevation we're talking about when we're out hunting ptarmigans. So we're either just below tree line in the willows, or we're up our elevations actually puts us above tree line there.
1: Well, that's up and that's work. Yeah.
2: Well, here's here's there's a question for <laughs> yep. Can you get ammunition up
3: there? <laughs> yeah, you can. <laughs> um, there's actually a it's store rare. nearby. Is it, honey?
4: Three Bears? Three Bears Market. Uh, so we have a Three Bears Market up here. It's a chain, and you can get anything from you can go buy a a, a brand-new shotgun or a rifle and walk out with um, <laughs> with spinach from the store. <laughs> kind of like
3: your all-purpose store. You know, you have your gas station, your grocery, and your gun area. So, you know, it's a uh, little
2: gas well, thing. You've got to go to the hardware store to get a pizza
1: bakery, yeah? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Get a wing nut and a sticky bun. uh yeah. <laughs> right.
3: <laughs> We're multi-purpose out here.
1: Exactly. All right. Well, you got to be kind of utilitarian, so. Well, that's good. Yeah, good. definitely. Guys, so, what's what's um, what what's the next big goal or the next big thing?
3: Yeah, so right now we're really just working on dialing in um, hunting areas, dialing in fishing areas. We knew this year would be more exploratory and really learning for us quite a bit because it is, it is a lot different habitat that you're looking for and a lot different fishing um, here than back in Michigan. So we're adjusting to that um, and, yeah, getting prepared for winter, really. So we're going oh, yeah. to pick up a snowblower, a, like auger-type snowblower for next next oh, week. Yeah. We'll pick that up um but yeah just you know transitioning into everything um and learning as much as we can
1: I bet I bet well with that in that spirit perhaps you'll come back on again with us next season and uh bring everybody up to speed we'll kind of do a check-in report with you
3: Yeah, definitely. Sounds good. Yeah, we'll try and send you some photos if we can, if you want to give us one of your email addresses at some point, or I think, Tom, you have Rick's information, right?
2: Yep. I see see a lot of Tom's Facebook posts, so uh, I know you guys are getting along pretty well because you seem to be adjusted to the bars up there.
3: Yeah, we've already um, we've already okay. found our hometown brewery and everything. So we're all set. A lot of lot of, <laughs> so of micro the
1: microbrewery then
3: oh definitely. <laughs>
1: <Good job>. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I guess the last critical question, do they have good bourbon up there? Um there's
3: we're So we're still trying to find a more hometown distillery, but Anchorage has a good distillery called Anchorage Distillery. Um, and we had some of their spirits. They were really good. They're whiskeys, right?
4: Yeah, rye whiskey was really good.
3: And then Dry Fly is from Seattle, Washington.
4: Yeah, Dry Fly is good.
3: Yukon um, Brewing had a distillery over in uh, Whitehorse. That was good. Um, the other cool thing about here is, like, you know, if we want to go to Anchorage Distillery, like, you know, when our anniversary is coming up or something, um, we can also <laughs> go to a hot spring and then hit the distillery on the way home. So <laughs> it'll be a pretty cool day.
1: That's awesome. Well, so, I mean, in, in the spirit of bourbon, people can uh, try spirits from Iron Fish. Uh,
3: yeah, Iron Fish has a new one that they just released too, the Mad Angler. Um,
1: oh, hello, so there
3: that one but that one's a rye whiskey that they have. Um, and I've kept in touch with Richard Anderson, one of the owners of Iron Um and he's doing well. So, yeah, definitely go drink some Ironfish for sure. Drink it for us.
1: They've got a neat little outfit over there. It's a, a pretty property and uh, a nice place it's for egg. an event and good products. And then, you know, we'll stay with the bourbon theme for a second. Just uh, – for our pal Karen, um, I think that uh, the local TU chapter still has some of their single barrel left um, available through the old dam store. So yeah. nice. there's a yeah. plug yeah. for our Mason Griffith uh, TU chapter. Yep. I
2: got a bottle that's in to Chuck in Ohio. So
1: uh... Oh, there you go.
3: Well, we'll have to, it's already 6.25 grab- where you are. we we'll- we're hoping to do a toast later for us it's only 225 here so <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah well well we're, we're going to say thank you and let you get out and uh round up some birds but in all since, sincerity thank you so much for taking time of your day and checking in with our listeners and uh bringing us up to speed on all the cool and neat things that are happening in your lives
3: yeah definitely yeah, thank, thank you, you so much for having us we really appreciate it it's good to keep touch back home
2: all right. Be
1: careful. Thanks. Thanks. No.
0: Right, thank you. Well, that's about 12 kinds of cool. Um, I think many of us would enjoy uh, sampling a little bit of Tom and Nicole's life for a few days. I'm not sure if any of us are cut out to do it full time, but uh, nevertheless, fascinating opportunities. So know that we'll check back in with them. Great people and good fun. Uh, tomorrow is Saturday, the 10th of September, and that means that we have our... Art sale at the museum complex from 10 a.m. until 3 p.m. This is how we raise money for our scholarship fund. Every year we grant two scholarships to local students uh, that are going to Kirtland College, and um, many of them end up in uh, a, a variety of <laughs> much needed occupations up here. So um, the one young man I'm familiar with the most, uh, Chase Lohr, um, was actually taking care of our property when uh, when we purchased it and uh, finishing up his schooling and uh, is now a member of the uh, local sheriff's organization and doing good things uh, in our community. So it's just uh, kind of a sample of what happens uh, when, uh, when you give folks a break. So help us out, uh, stop by, buy a bunch of stuff and enjoy it. So, and for those of you who are not local, thank you for listening. We appreciate it, and we'll look forward to talking to you next week. Um, you're really going to like our guests. I, I, I guess I can talk out of. What the heck, uh, Joe Haywood, um, a Michigan author and uh, just terrific individual, is going to join us next week. So, stay tuned. Look forward to that, and we'll see you then. Until next week, mind your backcast.